Welcome to the Transmission PR Podcast with me, your host, Abby Hawker. Whether you are an individual, agency, or organization looking to improve your understanding of how best to interact with a gender diverse audience, you want to improve the way you engage with trans and non-binary people, or you find yourself in the midst of a crisis, the Transmission PR Podcast can help. Join some of the leading names in diversity and inclusion for their five top tips on a range of topics and empower yourself with the tools you need to join the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Jamie Wareham. Together we chat about trans representation in the media with a view to helping listeners become more conscious when navigating their way through the current media landscape. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jamie. Um, Would you mind taking a moment just to introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Jamie Wareham. I'm the founder of Query F. Um, and we're a small independent publisher that is ultimately focused on launching the careers of LGBTQIA plus creatives. And that kind of drives everything that we do from kind of pitch process invoice to, you know, publishing. So just very, very quickly for the listeners, how might one get access to Queer AF if one was hoping to do so? Yeah, so like we're obsessed about helping people quit the apps. And so, yes, you can find us on social with the kind of handle at We Are Queer AF. But what we would encourage you to do is head to our website and our newsletter. Um, And the newsletter is designed to help you understand the news, get off the apps. um, And also it's where we commission a different emerging or marginalised queer creative each week to share like really unique perspectives. Um, And the idea of that space is it pays publishers and commissions people and stories that just don't get a chance by the mainstream media. Um, And it's completely driven by our membership uh, who kind of pick the stories rather than me as an editor so yeah okay so that's a really interesting um model and a a very different approach to the media I'd like to start if I may by having a little or rather getting you to explain a little bit about what led to the launch of Queer AF and I know this is something you talk about often in in the newsletter or have spoken about in the past quite a lot but um it's such an interesting angle that I think it'd be really valuable to uh, if you wouldn't mind yeah so like a lot of it is driven from my personal experience of working in the media but like our very first kind of start moment was um, quite early on in my career I was working in the newsroom um, and you know I was quite budding and young and I was starting to pitch all sorts of things um, and I was pitching a lot of kind of gay and trans stories um, and one day my head turned around to me and he said oh, you really ought to stop pitching quote gay stories because like ultimately there's really no quote money or audience in them and that was really devastating to hear and I think he said it with the best intentions I think he was trying to say oh you could do LGBT stuff as your niche but you know it's a small niche and I don't know if there's that much you know but at the time, it was quite devastating to hear because I was like, oh, my entire identity isn't worth anything to our audience of people. That's a bit rubbish. Anyway, so look, I had access to a podcast studio and was working with Student Pride at the time as one of their mentors and volunteers. And I thought, well, well let's let's test this theory out. Um, and so, yeah, we started a podcast called Queer F, um, which started as a kind of interview kind of piece but also like by season two had turned into kind of a mini documentary series where we at Student Pride were commissioning budding audio producers people that never got their like first audio commissions not certainly not paid ones at least um to create content for us and four seasons in with an international audience and 
guest hosts like Evan Davis and guests like Ian McKellen and Courtney Act, we built an international audience. And funnily enough, advertising revenue, um, which is what is was the basis of the funding for us to relaunch as a community interest company and a not-for-profit publisher last year. So as you say, funny old thing, you lead with the stories and the advertisers follow, which is kind of counter to how the media, the, the legacy media is approaching things at the moment. And this is having a massive impact in terms of how people are, the stories that people are taking away and how that's impacting their view of, obviously today we're talking about LGBTQIA people specifically, but I, I wonder if you, if you wouldn't mind focusing a little bit on them for a minute. And, and I think it's really interesting that this advertising first approach is leading everything. I, I'm kind of quite interested in, in how that then from an ethical perspective is justified within the newsroom. I don't know whether they ever went into any detail with you on that. Yeah, so our, my sins worked at Gay Star News and I spent some time at Attitudes, so I spent a lot of time in the gay media. So I can kind of, I can, and when I'd worked there, I led their video production teams. And so I did a lot of advertorial. So I definitely have a wealth of knowledge on that. Um, I think for context, before I touch upon your question directly, I think. What's really important to understand is how much the media has shifted in a short space of time. So I think it was a shift that was gradually happening anyway, but during the pandemic accelerated in a matter of weeks. And so what we saw there was as advertisers pulled a lot of marketing and sponsorships because they were unsure of what's going on, journalists and editors who have to say, by and large, want to do good stuff in the world, which is why they get into journalism. They know that and recognize the power of journalism to change policy, the country, to hold account, to play that like vital role that we're all taught about in journalism school, that, you know, fourth pillar idea. And during that brief period of absolute madness that we all went through and the scare of where funding was gonna come from, journalists and editors had to fight even harder than they did before to get clicks to their stories from social media algorithms that are hungry for divisive hate, which drives engagement far higher than hope and joy does, no matter what we like to think, because um, it buys into our instinctive human curiosities, unfortunately. And so that's the context of what has changed in the media in the last few years, is a, a legacy media that has always had to sell newspapers and has always played this game to some extent, but now in this throwaway click world has been chasing really divisive content options because the clickbait era quickly faded, the kind of Buzzfeed listicle era where like, you know, really click worthy stuff. People started to wake up to that. And so then newspapers had to find a new way to generate clicks and what they tapped into is what, and I, I dislike the phrase, but I, and so I put it in quote marks, but like the culture war stuff that we see all the time, um, which obviously taps into a broader political stuff that we're going to have time to un unpick today. And so in that context, and again, speaking from gay media land, which has always struggled to like punch through and punch above the weight, um, there was times in those newsrooms, uh, specifically at Gay Star News, uh, is, is, is much easier for me to talk about because um, they've, they've <laughs> closed now. But like there would be times in that newsroom where there was a real interest from that editorial team 
to move away from largely gay white men's content. And like a lot of pitching and a lot of great, incredible conversations in that newsroom, but time and time again, we knew in order to deliver enough clicks to keep the advertisers happy and get them to sponsor us again or you know give us money again we would need to do some easy content options and so that meant doing you know pictures of pretty white boys with ripping abs who are all quite young and all that kind of content options to the like distaste of the newsroom but we did that because we knew it was a and so in the context of legacy media you know, that's an example of what happened in, 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 in the gay star newsroom. But in legacy media, their version of that is, right, what's, what's our twink, if you will, that's going to get enough clicks for us? And unfortunately, for a lot of them, they've recognised the power of kind of like rage and hate clicks. And that's the kind of scary situation we're in, because as you kind of start to allude to in your question, we pull, all of us, whether we're allies or not, what we think and feel unconsciously from the media whether we like to think we do or not like we like to think we've got our own opinions but like our brains are hardwired to remember stuff that is repeated and so when stuff is repeated enough times in the media even though we know it's a lie and i think the brexit bus is such a good example of this like it starts to seep in we almost start to believe it and that is the kind of dangerous situation that we're in at the moment or at least an attempt at summarising it. <laughs> and it's a paradox, isn't it? We all think we're great people. <laughs> Everyone thinks, you know, they live a nice life and they do, they wouldn't, they wouldn't harm a fly. They wouldn't kind of intentionally do anything. And that's right. But if we are hardwired to this kind of, or attracted to this dirty little secret of clicking on things, it's a bit like when you lose yourself to 20 minutes down a rabbit warren of uh, Daily Mail because you've clicked on David Beckham. And then you're suddenly reading about something that's completely unrelated and it's just full of hate and horror and, and doesn't have a shred of uh, truth in it. But it's kind of been written in order to, like you say, generate those clicks and, and kind of drive that um, attention. And, and that's exactly it. It's that what the shift that I, I think we've seen over the last five to ten years is back when we were selling newspapers, there was a sense of what is journalism, what stories drive journalism. Now, I think we're seeing what stories drive attention. And I think that shift, in, and it's a subtle shift in, in journalism, but the, the move away from selling newspapers to what drives clicks is an attention shift. And the, the game in clicks is so much shorter. And so the attention to detail in journalism doesn't have to be as high as it once used to be when it was in the newspaper. Um, and so what we're seeing in like a lot of like click and online places is churn. And churn is really dangerous because what happens is one newspaper, often the Daily Mail, which has a really clear editorial stance on a lot of things but is very biased, will write something up and that will get picked up by every single piece of newspaper, newspaper or a legacy newspaper. But if the Daily Mail coverage or frankly any newspaper's initial coverage is wrong and that gets churned to every other place, that misinformation in the public consciousness becomes fact mm -hmm. whether it is a fact or not and that is the danger of this kind of attention-based journalism is you know and i think the story of the whether a child identifies as a cat is a really good example of this so it was picked up by fox news and gb news who gave it a massive slant and despite them actually playing 
the source material out on their output, which I, I still think is incredible. And that's where I listen to the source material. As a journalist, I listened to that source material and I was like, well, clearly no one identifies as a cat. And actually, a lot of the coverage didn't say anyone identifies as a cat, even when it got to the Telegraph and, and then got spurred into the rest of the media. But through a few clever, subtle changes in tone, language and headlines, that was the sense that was pulled from it. And by the time it was churned to the LBC call-in show, it was a, it was a question of whether why kids are allowed to identify as cats instead of what had actually happened, which was someone saying, well, what if a kid identified as a cat? And the teacher going, well, no one does. And it's despicable to try and suggest that concept the same as identifying as, as a very real someone who's having you know gender identity or gender dysphoria and so that's the the bonkers and, and danger of churn and the impact and I think this is the thing that gets missed so 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 often by journalists but as us as consumers as well I think we sometimes forget the impact that journalism has on real people and like I talk a lot about like the fragility in particular of trans lives. And I have friends that see those newspaper headlines when they see, you know, the prime minister talking about their lives in such throwaway comments. And they are throwaway to, to Rishi Sunak when he says them. They are throwaway to the journalists who write them. But at home, can you just imagine the power of the news, a newspaper, a national platform denouncing your life on a daily basis it's terrifying and also as you were saying it's not just the throwaway comment it's the fact that that throwaway comment is then replicated as fact and it's left out there and no one is pushing back no one is kind of saying you know actually this is nonsense or if they are no one remembers it or not as many media outlets are pushing you know are kind of shouting from the rooftops that this is nonsense no, that's a kind of, you know, it's an, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's kind of, you know, in my new shy, stop, stop picking it apart. It's a good story. You know, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Um, and that's what I've been saying a lot of lately is we can't forget that there are real human beings at the end of this who are being bombarded constantly. And, you know, it's like you go onto your, um, one of your social media channels and you can have a hundred great comments and then one bad comment pops up. And I'm not talking about, um, members of the LGBTQ plus community who get a lot more hate, but say just your average person might just get one hate comment and that's what you focus on. So if you, you're just getting bombarded with stuff, I can't even, you know, begin to imagine how that must feel. Um, what you were just saying now reminds me a little bit of how sign, sound bites would be cut in a certain way in order to put out a certain message, which was completely unconnected to what the individual, the expert was was saying in order to, you know, create something that was a bit more meaty and would would kind of grab the headlines. And it, yeah, it's um, it's really really troubling. And it's unethical as well. And I think that's the thing that really bothers me about this. Like, if you take the like LGBTQIA plus context out of it, which is really important in the conversation we're having. But actually, as an editor, as a journalist, as someone that has worked in the media, in a like, and this is the like a broad industry take, but like in a in a world where AI is set to be like our generation's printing press moment. Trust in information and journalism and democracy is one of the biggest threats to our like planet, like alongside climate change uh, and, and arguably higher so because 
without trust in democracy, we will never tackle climate change. And all of these actions that we've talked about are ebbing away at the trust that legacy media outlets have been built over the years. And trust is really hard to win. It's even harder to win back. And my worry is that all of these actions that we as a media are taking is, is harming our long-term opportunity <laughs> at being like sustainable businesses. And I think that's the thing that I just think is bonkers. So at the moment, the media is cashing in on this hate, which is short-lived and just like it was in the 80s around gay men, where there was a massive dip in hate and then that began to shift again. The same thing has happened again with trans people is, is exactly the same 40 years on. And that's what's been so upsetting about it is knowing that it's going to take 40 years to get trans people to where gay people are today and gay people aren't in the best of places now. You know, the same can be said for the women's rights movement. You know, we're over 100 years on. And has that really shifted that much? I'm, I'm arguably some yes, but really no. I think that's the thing that really bothers me is it doesn't make business sense in the long term. Um, so I like write for Forbes on the side and I think one of the stats that like has really stuck with me. So I wrote about um, brands pulling out from pride and campaigns and how they should handle that and what they should do. And one of the things that really stuck with me was a report, I think it was by Portland, that uh, big research agency in the US, and they kind of asked Gen Zers, so the next generation of news media consumers, what they think brands should be doing. And they said that they should absolutely have a say in LGBT people. They should absolutely have a say on social issues. I think it was it was either one in three or two or three. It was it was a high amount, and an even higher amount. I think it was three and five said that they should have pro good LGBT responses. And so it makes business sense to be on the side of Gen Zs, but in cashing in on this short term win of hate that the legacy media and some brands are riding off of they are shutting off their brands for years to a new generation of people and, I, and I, I would say the same about the conservative party as well i think they're cashing in on votes at the moment but it will undo them for years to come in the same way that they've undone trans rights it will take them the same amount of time to build back um okay so it's all quite bleak really isn't it <laughs> but I think one of the key things that we're trying to do through as an organization is to help people to be more aware that when they are consuming this media, this is what's happening. This is the kind of um, reading between the lines. This is what the media is doing. There is an agenda and it isn't the one that you might think it is. Um, and kind of, I just think that from an allyship perspective, having that level of awareness is really, really important. Even if it's just kind of, even if you haven't got much time to dedicate to um, trans rights or, you know, you don't have any vested interest, you don't know anyone who's trans, just understanding at a really basic level that this is clickbaiting is so, so important because I think that if, as long as people are walking around with that knowledge, when they're reading it, they can dismiss it much more easily then if they're reading it, and as you said, they take it as fact, they kind of sort of, you know, well, I've seen it in, in, in four or five different media outlets now, therefore it must be true. Um, you know, because it has such massive real life implications. If you look at um, access to trans healthcare and you look at access to trans healthcare for youth, 
specifically, which has been proven to be safe, effective and life-saving by all of the major medical institutions around the world. And yet you can very easily find a story sort of pretty much on a daily basis saying, you know, sex changes in the, in the schoolyard. Nonsense. Because it's sound bites, isn't it? It's like, you know, playing to this Frankenstein nonsense notion that, I don't know, people are kind of, it's just so, I find it so flabbergasting because it's just not, it is an absolute nonsense. If people need access to care, they should have access to care. And I don't really understand how it's become this big political conversation when actually we should just be deferring to healthcare professionals who have the knowledge. And it's really interesting you use the word bleak to describe this moment. And the way I described it, it is bleak. And I think the thing that's really important for us all to remember, and the reason I use the, and I hark back to the kind of 80s example around gay men really very often, is it was temporary then, and it is temporary now. Things are really bad at the moment in the media particularly on trans rights and there's you know murmurs of broader LGBTQIA plus prejudice and we have taken a couple of steps back but just like with all fights for equality we've taken two or three steps back so we can take five or ten forward in the coming years and that is why I point to the Gen Z kind of statistics a lot because brands aren't stupid they know that that's what's coming and although a lot of them are cashing in on this hate at the moment and it's important we talk about that because of the detrimental impact we just set out but also I take a lot of hope from the advertising industry bizarrely as someone that works on an ad free <laughs> platform because <laughs> we don't think advertising helps news but there was a real move a couple of years ago because young people Gen Z said these bodies that we're seeing on adverts the beautiful white men and the beautiful white women they don't represent us. And brands woke up to that and they listened. And I think if you turn on the TV today, there's some remnants of that left, but there are different bodies. There are different people from different racialized communities, from all kinds of different body types, disabilities, on screen in adverts. And if it's happening in adverts, it's, it's happening because that's where social attitudes are. And I always think that actually advertising is always a couple of steps ahead of the rest of the media. And it's really interesting. And, and like, so our theory of change is change the newsroom, change the country, right? So we're focusing on changing small areas of our country because we know the impact it can have. I think there's a few other threads that really like are part of the picture of we're, if we as Queer AF are going to like win that mission. So that's one part of it, change the newsroom. The other part of it is as marginalized communities change the way newsrooms report on us. So kind of working on the outside with newsrooms to, to change so inside and outside. And I think the other big player that could have a lot more effort and focus on it is the power that advertisers have. So I thought it was really interesting, the uh, advertising pledge, which saw a hundred uh, odd organizations, including pretty much every large media agency and a organizations that represent 90% of advertisers all around us, pledging to not only back pride campaigns, but also to consider divesting, so taking their media spend away from media companies that are pushing the hate that we've been talking about. And money speaks volumes. And the reason they signed up to that is because of what I've been banging on about, because that's what Gen Z want them to do. 
And so that's the hope that I hold is that <laughs> capitalism is imperfect. And yet because of it and because of social attitudes, it will play a big factor in it. And, I, and it'd be really interesting to see what more advertisers can do and what more brands can do. And this is where like influencers and all of us as creatives play our part because we have voices to speak out about what brands do. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone wants to kind of uh, understand more about uh, advertising and their pledge, you can listen to the previous episode when we talked to Marty Davis and they um, explained it all. So that that's kind of a good one to listen to. I think that um, that goes back to the business case. You know, ultimately, we see corporate environmental and social governance kind of rising up the agenda. We see investors looking to engage with organizations who are actually adding to the world and not just taking away. And I think that the more focus there is on that, the more ethical companies realize they have to be, the higher this will go up the agenda. Because, you know, there are very few things that sort of show how much a company cares about doing what is right than supporting trans people. You know, if you think about kind of, you know, the, the people who are most right now impacted by this negative narrative, that's the community you're kind of looking at. And it does, it has like a trickle down effect on the broader community with them kind of at the pinnacle almost at the minute. It's, um, I think, as a result of that, I agree with you completely. I think there's, there are the five steps forward that are going to come, hopefully sooner rather than later. And I think this year there's been, there has been a, a market shift, even though looking at Pride Month, there have been a number of organizations who have put out campaigns and then pulled them back straight away because they've had the inevitable backlash. And that's a real kind of... Um, challenge because companies need to learn how to be responsible in this space and if they are going to enter it to do it properly and to do it from the right place and I think if they understand why they're doing it then that will be absolutely fine and they will stop having that fear that moment of kind of panic and and dialing back I think that moving forward companies are going to be bolder because they're going to understand that they've had their fingers burned. There are too many examples of organizations doing it wrong and how that looks and how the community responds, particularly the younger generations who are calling for people to be more responsible, who are calling them out. And this was the first year, I think, where during Pride, the community said, stop waving flags. You know, it's great that you do put some focus on this time of year. It's great that you do kind of acknowledge the challenges that we're facing, but enough is enough, you know, walking through the streets, marching, kind of wearing your pride rainbow um, on your face is, is wonderful, but it's not enough. It's the first time I've, I've personally seen the community be so strident in terms of its call to arms, you know, for allyship, for proper meaningful allyship and for organizations to do, to approach it from a more responsible perspective. And I think that I'm hoping that that will begin to translate quite quickly because now what I'm asking when I go into organizations is what are you doing next? How is it that you're going to come to next pride? What's, what's your position going to be? What, what can you say in response to the question of what have you done this last year, these last 12 months, how has that kind of helped us? And I th- I'm hoping that, you know, this, that, that will sort of lead to during over the course of the next kind of few months, years and that will lead to kind of people actually spending a little bit more thought and a bit more time on really digging down into how they can make a difference. I totally agree and and like during June as a 
fashion and queer journal, particularly one that writes for Forbes, I get bombarded with Pride Month press releases to a point where I had an out-of-office on that explained what I was actually looking for. Like I had one like a couple of days before the end of Pride Month, like, I don't know if you're looking for any Pride Month stories. And they were like, here's all what we do as a corporate. And like what they listed was really good. They were like, we've got this great employee resource group and we do this and we've got these DNI policies and isn't this all amazing? And would you like to speak to our DNI lead? And I was like, that sounds like the bare minimum that you should be doing as a corporate. I was like, so like, congrats, but it's not newsworthy. And I say that not just as a journalist board of getting those requests, but you're so right. The community has like has always said, oh, corporates aren't great, but mm, they're kind of useful because they find rights. But this year, they've really recognised that it's just not enough. And I think we've seen that with, you know, the counter protests we've seen popping up around events and the kind of awareness, particularly around climate change issues. But like big picture, the thing that like I keep going back to is like a similar row happened around Black Lives Matter. And like, I think the best example of that is a is a, not only like one of hope, but also one for like brands to take away is, is, is Nike. So when they stuck to their stance in 2018, during the company's kind of support for the quarterback, Colin Kipenek and his racial justice protests, there was this huge backlash, massive boycott, lost loads of sales, um, but only briefly. And then they bounced back and within a year, their stock prices were up over 60% and the company ended its fiscal year <laughs> with a profit of 22 billion, like with a 3% year on year increase. Like that's, that's huge. Like that is lots and lots and lots of dollars. And that is what I think we all need to remember when we are like talking about brands or as individuals, what we're talking about. And it's, it's pointing to that like big picture stuff and remembering that we as individuals, sure, we can take actions, but actually it's much more powerful if we ask, if our actions are about asking for systems of change for, for the big players who have institutional powers to shift their stance. And, and that's why what the community has been saying is really exciting. And like grassroots stuff does work. And I like, talk a lot about the there's a great example around you know free prep on the nhs that's a great example of where the community and the work of the national aids trusts like two law cases against the nhs that was grassroots action lgbt people saying we need a system change and that system change has come in place and around twenty five thousand people are on free prep on the nhs which probably not enough but it's a great start that's the kind of like focus we should have um you know as individuals asking for those systems to change. But that just kind of reiterates the, the fact that these things need to come from a place of authenticity. They need to cut, they need to have a clear objective. You know, the whole Colin Kaepernick thing, Nike wanted to show its support for a minority community. And so when it, when it received the pushback, when it had the backlash, it said, no, I'm not, we're not backing down because this is important to us. We believe in what we're doing. We know why we're doing it. And the difference between that and Bud Light is that Bud Light were just jumping on a bandwagon. You know, when they decided to rope in poor Dylan Mulvaney, it's like, well, why were you doing that? What were you trying to achieve? And when they got the backlash, they didn't have a spine. It was completely spineless to wait for a couple of weeks before saying anything. And then when you did say something, it was kind of, well, you know, we don't want to cause any division. What are you talking about? And the irony of that response as well is it damaged their bottom line even further because 
instead of doubling down on what they said and what they've done, they also lost the LGBT community. And so by sitting on the fence, they upset everyone. And that is what affected their bottom line. And that is why they won't bounce back in the same way that Nike did, because Nike said, we understand what we're doing. We believe like, like Nike is really good at value-based advertising. You know, every, like you don't know, no one buys Nike trainers because they're specific, special trainers, really. We buy them because of the lifestyle that Nike sells to us constantly. And they backed up that lifestyle value-based advertising by also believing in their values. And I think, you know, the, I think the other really dramatic shift we've seen in the last couple of years is the way that brands respond to Ukraine. That had never happened before. Brands have never taken a political stance in the same way. And I think that changed, that changed brand advertising forever. It was an overnight shift. And I think that in a, you know, a Gen Z generation that is expecting more of that, we'll only see more of it to come. Brilliant. Let's hope so. Thank you so, so much, Jamie, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if you think any of this is even vaguely insightful, I can promise you uh, I'm in your inbox every week with more of it. <laughs> Love it. I read it on a Saturday morning. Can you um, remind the listeners how they can get, how we'll put the links in the um, show notes, but if you could just quickly remind the listeners how they can sign up to Queer AF. Yeah, best way to do it is head to our website. We are queerf.com forward slash subscribe or just hit the homepage and tap in your email there. Um, and yeah, and we kind of basically are in your inbox with a top story explained. We're really focused on helping you understand. So it's not like more what bombarded. It's like why things are happening, um, plus a bunch of kind of TLDRs. And uh, also we kind of curate some really cool like queer podcasts and music and books so that <laughs> at the end of all of the doom, you're like, cool, how can I relax? Um, so that's all in there as well. Thank you so much, Jamie. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Transmission PR podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you would like more of the same. You can connect with us on social media at TransMPR on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also visit our website, transmissionpr.com, or connect with us on LinkedIn via Transmission PR or Abby Hawker.